We're coming through, Robbie? We're good. Okay, good morning again. Thank you, Danny and Christine, for that. Um, it's my privilege to be able to speak with you this morning. Start up the old computer here. Okay. So thankful that I can turn up the light on this screen as my vision fades with age. Make things much easier to see. If you would open your Bibles um, to Luke 24, and I forgot to bring my Bible up here. That was a little bit of an oversight, a little excitement here. Going to need that. Luke 24, verse 33. This morning, I want to tell you about peace. More specifically, the peace of God. And even more specifically, the peace of God that the angels announced on that first Christmas we just heard read as was described in the Gospel of Luke. But before we come to Christmas, I'm going to jump to the end of Luke's Gospel. And that's why I asked you to turn to chapter 24. And we're going to read, if I can get my computer to work for me. Okay. We're going to um, be looking at Luke 24, where Luke tells us how Jesus, after his resurrection, actually on resurrection day, later in the day, Jesus appeared to two of his followers on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him at the time and were not quite told why. But as they walk, he explains from the Hebrew Bible, that's what we call the Old Testament, he explains the mission of the promised Savior from texts that were written long before, long before that, that time. They were written 700,000, even 1,400 years earlier. And these two men are captivated. As they arrive at their destination, they convince Jesus to stop and eat and stay with them that evening. At the meal, he breaks the bread and he blesses it. And suddenly, we read, their eyes were opened. This is Luke 24, 31. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. The interaction with Jesus had set their hearts aflame. They got up and returned to Jerusalem. They must have half ran, half walked. It was seven miles. And I imagine they were breathless and that they nearly knocked down the door where Jesus' followers were gathered. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble advancing my... I want to pick up the story here in Luke 24, verse 33. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Peace, peace be to you. 
It's just two words in the language Jesus would have used. Aramaic. And I try to pronounce it. Shlama alakam. Or in Hebrew, you may be familiar, Shalom Aleichem. It was the customary greeting. But on this occasion, it was much, much more. It was an anticipation of their startled response and an expression of genuine love that they truly might have peace. And more, it was God's Word and God's power. The same Word and power that calmed the wind and the waves. The same Word and power that were more than able to give them peace. The disciples needed that love. They needed that calming power. They needed peace. They needed shalom. Three days ago, their world had been plunged into darkness. Their light had been snuffed out. Their teacher, the one they thought was their promised king and savior, had been arrested, unjustly condemned, publicly and brutally humiliated, beaten and executed. And as he stood before them now, their first thought was, he's a ghost. They were startled, as we read. Who wouldn't be? They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Frightened, troubled, doubtful. Can you identify with the disciples this morning? Are you frightened? Are you troubled? Doubtful? I would say you certainly have good reason to be. And you probably don't need to be reminded. And maybe as the Christmas season is upon us, you don't even want to be reminded. But if we're to understand and appreciate and participate in the love and the power of the peace of God, it's important that we fathom the depth of our need. So if you'll permit me, are you frightened? We may be safe in this sanctuary at the moment, but we all know wars are raging around the globe. People are losing their lives, their loved ones, their land, their livelihood. We see Israel, Gaza, Ukraine in the news. But there are civil wars in Myanmar, Ethiopia, Sudan. There are Islamic insurgencies across Africa. There's even drug cartels, cartel wars in Mexico, I found out. And the ones I named are just the so-called major conflicts. And there's a threat of broader war, as you may know. Nations are conspiring against nations. There are radicals around the globe inflamed by false ideologies and and false religions, and they're plotting and preparing and perpetrating terrorist acts, not only abroad, but also here at home. And there's pr plenty even more to fear from within our own borders. Our domestic news is daily peppered with reports of spreading mental illness, drug abuse, gang violence. Are you troubled? We have problems with parental absenteeism, postmodernist and nihilistic educational and cultural influences, hate, pride, greed, they seem to be corroding the very fabric of our society. Do we know what a man is? What a woman is? Do we even know what a human life is? Do we have a basis upon which we can judge right and wrong? Is everything being turned upside down? And are you doubtful? We're half a century into the information age, as they call it, and we find ourselves now confronted with such an abundance of information and fake news, misinformation, disinformation, deep fake, artificial intelligence. It seems increasingly difficult to discern, discern between fact and fiction. Can we ever again be confident that a thing is true? Against this backdrop, esteemed Christian leaders are embroiled in controversy or abandoning their ministries or found guilty of financial fraud or marital infidelity. 
We have progressive Christians, so-called undermining beliefs that were regarded as fundamental for 2,000 years. And our youth are deconstructing their faith and walking away from Jesus. And the noise. Maybe I'm giving you some noise this morning. But with the news media and entertainment and social media right at our fingertips, we are just a click or a swipe away from being immersed in personal, community, domestic, and or foreign catastrophe. If we so chose, we could spend every waking moment just soaking in fear, trouble, and doubt. Do we need peace this morning? Do we need shalom? Do we ever? And because Christmas is upon us, to find peace this morning, what I thought we'd do is follow in the footsteps of wise man and philosopher Linus Van Pelt. Who knows Linus Van Pelt? Of Peanuts cartoon fame. You remember him? You remember what he said when exasperated, an exasperated Charlie Brown, who definitely needed peace, asked, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Linus calmly took center stage and he recited verbatim the story of Jesus' birth from Luke chapter 2. So, you're at the end of Luke. If you can turn to the beginning of Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading from there in a minute. You know the story. The shepherds are in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly angels appear and sing glory to God in the highest and on peace among and pe- on, on earth, sorry, on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth. That's quite a proclamation, and especially in light of the turmoil, the conflict, the trouble, the fear, and the noise that we just went through. If God brought peace on earth 2,000 years ago, what's happened since? What exactly were the angels proclaiming? And what was Jesus speaking to his disciples on that resurrection day? Let's read the account here in Luke 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse to verse 20, and then, then we'll talk about it. <clears throat> now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same reason, there were, same region, there were some shepherds, staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then 
and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. As I thought about the angel's proclamation of peace, it struck me that we could think about peace in terms of four of the main players, quote-unquote, if you will, in this story. There's Caesar, Jesus, Mary, and the shepherds. Each of them embodies one of four big ideas about peace that are in this passage. Caesar reminds us that mankind is unable to attain true peace. Jesus reminds us that true peace is a gift from God. Mary reminds us that God's gift is received by faith. And the shepherds remind us that God's gift of peace changes our world. That's going to be our outline for the remainder of the sermon. So the first player is Caesar. He reminds us mankind is unable to attain true peace. How's that, you ask? I'm glad you asked. You see, Caesar Augustus, he's named here by Luke in verse 1. He wasn't just any emperor. He was the founder of what we know now as the Roman Empire, and he was its first true emperor. His reign ushered in what historians call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the golden age of peace and prosperity. I found out he even had an altar, a monument, it's called the Ara Pacis Augustae in Latin, or Augustus's Altar of Peace. He had this altar built to commemorate the peace that he was bringing to the world. It was consecrated in 9 BC, only a few years before Jesus' birth, and you can see it in Rome today. His reign also initiated an imperial cult where living emperors became recognized as having divinely sanctioned authority, and deceased emperors could be consecrated as divine just by a vote of the Senate. He styled himself as, forgive the Latin, Imperator Caesar Divi Filius, which means Commander Caesar, Caesar means King, Son of the Deified One. The Deified One being Julius Caesar, his deceased granduncle, adoptive father, and predecessor. So Luke's account starts with a king, the first king of a new kingdom. He was called the Son of a God. And his kingdom, at least in his estimation, would bring peace to the civilized world. Later in the story, of course, we have Jesus, the capital K king, the king of kings, the actual son of God, the actual son of the actual one and true and living God, whose birth marked the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth and whose arrival was heralded by the angels as bringing peace on earth from God. I think this parallel and Luke is pointing us to, begs us to con contrast the peace of Caesar and the peace of God. To begin, we know that from history that Caesar's peace was not really all that peaceful. The Pax Romana brought an end to civil war within the old republic, but the Pax was an imperial peace. The Caesars were tyrants. They killed political rivals. They brutally suppressed revolts in provinces such as Judea and Britain came across this quote from one of the conquered people in northern Britain. He said, the Romans create 
a desolation, and then they call it peace. And then there were the taxes. Taxation in conquered lands was a means of humiliation and subjugation. There were various taxes, including a poll tax based on the number of adults, a wealth tax based on how, many, how much money and property a person possessed. And so people had to be counted regularly so that the provinces would know how much tribute was due to Rome. In some ways, the circumstances are similar to our own. We register and pay taxes, and sometimes we wonder whether our politicians have God complexes. But we are not a subjugated people by any stretch, and we certainly are not occupied by and paying tribute to a hostile power. But that was the world for Mary and Joseph. Rome called it peace, but what it really was was upheaval to comply with the census and taxation. It was oppression by a foreign power. It was life under a king who maintained the facade of a free republic, but in reality was a tyrant who posed as a demigod. This scene is set in Luke chapter 1, both in Mary's song, so that chapter 1 before chapter 2, both in Mary's song in verses 46 through 55 and in Zacharias' prophecy in verses 68 and 79 through 79. These passages speak of a people needing to be redeemed in verse 68 and saved, verse 69 and of God scattering the proud, verse 51, bringing down rulers, 52, sending away the rich, 54, of God exalting the humble, 52, of God filling the hungry, verse 53, of saving the people from their enemies who hate them, verses 71 and 74, and a shining light on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to lead them into peace, it's verse 79. So I think we should be getting the message the people needed and longed for peace. But Caesar, the so-called son of God, certainly hadn't brought it. But this is not just about politics and polls, tyrants and taxation. There's an underlying problem here. You see, there's a reason that people are suffering. It's not merely Rome that is the problem. Yes, Rome is the immediate cause of the suffering. But the root cause of the people's suffering, their true oppressor, the reason they don't have true peace is their sin. And if you'll follow along with me, I'll try to explain why we can see that from the text. In chapter 1, Zacharias points us to this sin problem. He speaks about his son John, who has just been born and will grow up to be John the Baptist and how he will prepare the way for the Lord who will guide our feet in the way of peace. You can see that if you look in verse 79, chapter 1. But how will John do this? Here's what Zacharias said, beginning in verse 76. And you, child, that's John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation. How? By the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you catch it? Peace is coming, says Zacharias, and the Lord is going to bring it. And John will give the people the knowledge that will lead them ultimately to it. And what is that knowledge? What do the people need to know? They need to know that the way to peace is opened by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. Salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the mercy of God. Now there's a name for people who need God's salvation by mercy and forgiveness. We call those people sinners. 
at the bottom of the barrel, Zacharias knows the people's problem is their sin. And that's why they're sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. That sin is the problem becomes clearer if we consider the larger picture that Zacharias' prophecy paints for us. You see, his words are not really anything new. And this happens a lot in the New Testament. He quotes a number of places in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. In particular, for one, Zacharias brings us back to Isaiah. For example, verse 79 in Luke chapter 1, the part about sitting in darkness and the shadow of death refers to Isaiah 9-2. We're very familiar with around Christmas time. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and Isaiah is announcing God's judgment on the nation of Israel. In Isaiah's time, it wasn't the Romans. It was civil war, then it was the Assyrians, and later the Babylonians. And it all culminated in the total destruction of Jerusalem and, and many of the people being led off in great numbers um, in captivity to Babylon. But why did all this happen? Why were the people walking in darkness and living in a dark land? Isaiah doesn't mince any words. You can look to Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Isaiah has a message for the people. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Isaiah goes on in later chapters to detail the people's sin. They're worshiping false gods. They're prideful. They're murderers. They've abandoned the orphan and the widow. Their rulers are corrupt. The nation is just permeated through and through with evil. And for this reason, they have come and will continue to come under the judgment of God. Now there's a... On a broader scale, there's a real sense in which this is the story of the history of Israel. God would bless them. They would get comfortable and forget and abandon Him. They would descend into idol worship and all, then all kinds of evil. And God would bring judgment upon them, often in the form of an invading nation. Then they would repent and God would restore and bless them. But before long, their sin would lead them astray once again and the cycle would repeat. A lasting peace remained out of reach. But we're not just signaling out Israel or Rome. The story of these peoples is the story of the human race. We're all, we're all sinners incapable of attaining, attaining true peace. And the underlying reason ultimately is our sin. This is the larger picture that Luke is laying out for us. The so-called Pax Romana at the time of Jesus' birth was a reminder of all this. And the oppression under Caesar Augustus was only the beginning. If you know how the story goes, around 70 years later, about the time that Luke would have been writing the words we're reading now, some of the Jews would revolt. Rome would move in to crush the rebellion, and within a few years, Jerusalem was yet again laid to waste. One source I read said that at that time, 25% of the Jewish population of Judea was exterminated. Nearly 100,000 were sold into slavery. Tens of thousands more were deported, and many simply fled. 
So it wasn't just the darkness of a gentle pastoral Judean scene into which the glory of the Lord shone that Christmas night. It was the darkness of sin's oppression and the shadow of coming judgment. But into that darkness, the glory of the Lord did shine. Where Caesar reminds us that mankind is unable to attain true peace, Jesus, of course the central player in all of this, reminds us that true peace is a gift. True peace is a gift from God. Where, as we've seen, the bad news is that true peace is not and cannot be of man because man is sinful. The good news of the Christmas story is that God has graciously brought peace to man and that peace is, in fact, Jesus. And that's exactly what the angel said that night in the sheep pasture. I bring you good news, Luke 2.10, unto, uh, unto you a Savior, Christ the Lord is born, Luke 2.11. That announcement, just like Zacharias's prophecy, was not something new, I discovered. It is a reference, once again, to the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at what the angel said again. I want you to notice there are five key elements starting in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Luke. It says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The five elements are good news, great joy, a Savior, glory to God, peace on earth. And if you want to turn over to Isaiah 52, verse 7, we'll find those same five elements. I'll read it for you. Isaiah 52, verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. We see the same five elements. Good news, same as in Luke. Happiness is like great joy. Salvation parallels Savior. God reigns parallels the angels' glory to God. And peace in both cases, is being announced. How lovely are on the mountains or the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. All five elements are there. So I think as we try to understand the significance of the angel's announcement, to understand how a first century reader might receive Luke's account, we would be well advised to look at the context of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52. And we've been doing that a little bit already context of Isaiah, 66 chapters, it's very rich, and we could obviously spend a lot of time there, but I just want to make three observations from Isaiah. One, that peace is a work of God. Two, that peace is wrought by God, making a personal appearance on the scene. And three, peace is wrought by God's servant, taking the sin of the people upon himself. I see these three things right in and around Isaiah 52. First, in verses 8 through 12 of Isaiah 52, we see that the peace of God, uh, the peace, that peace, sorry, that peace is a work of God. Peace is a work of God. Isaiah 52, verse 8 says, Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. 
Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Verses 8 and 9 says, as I try to emphasize, that it is the Lord who will restore, it is the Lord who will comfort, it is the Lord who will redeem. The people can't, won't, don't save themselves. Verse 10 says that salvation is the salvation of our God. Verse 12 says that God will go before Israel and God will be her rear guard. It's really a beautiful picture of Israel's rescue. God will do the rescuing, God will do the protecting, and God will do the defending. The coming peace is all a work of God. The second observation from Isaiah 52 is that peace is wrought by God making a personal appearance on the scene. God will very personally be very personally involved in this rescue. If you look at verse 6 in Isaiah 52, it says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. This is what I say. Here I am. How amazing is this? After reading, studying John for a while. 700 years after Isaiah said that peace would be announced, that the people would know the Lord's name, that the Lord would be the one speaking, that the Lord would say, here I am, 700 years later, at the birth of Jesus, here come the angels announcing peace and the arrival of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the very one whom John said was the Word, the very one who himself would say many, many times, I am He. Here He is. But it gets better because the third observation, that in Isaiah, peace is wrought by God's servant taking the sin of the people upon himself. I have a test for you. What comes after 52? 53. You're still awake. What come, 53 comes after 52. Normally. What's in Isaiah 53? So after Isaiah 52 comes Isaiah 53. Actually, 52 bleeds right into 53. But if you don't already know what's in Isaiah 53, I hope you will after this morning. Isaiah 53 is a very important passage. It's the passage the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts 8. An angel sent Jesus, Jesus' disciple Philip to meet this Ethiopian and answer a burning question the Ethiopian had while he was reading it. The question was, of whom does Isaiah say these things? And Philip then preaches Jesus to him from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant chapter, and it's all about Jesus. But more specifically, it's one of the clearest prophecies, if not the clearest, about Jesus' atoning sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible. It's the chapter where we, where we read, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being. I'll stop there. My translation says well-being, but the underlying Hebrew word is shalom. The chastening for our shalom, our peace, fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 
Isaiah tells us that Israel came to ruin because of her sin, as we saw earlier. Isaiah tells us that the judgment of God has rightly fallen on her. But Isaiah also announces that God will save her, that He will redeem her, that He will grant her peace. And in Isaiah 53, he tells us how God will do that. He will send His servant, His righteous one, as He's called in 53.11. He will send His servant to suffer, not for His own sins, because He has none. But instead, He will bear the punishment of the sins, for the sins of the people. This is how God would finally deal with the sin problem. And this is how God would finally bring peace to earth. He would send Jesus. And Jesus, Paul tells us, Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2.14 This is what the angels were announcing that Christmas night. That Jesus is our peace. That Jesus has come. Okay. I said a whole lot. I'm tempted to say, are you hungry for more? <laughs> Reference to a movie. And you, eh, okay. <laughs> Home Alone. <laughs> Are you hungry for more? <clears throat> okay. I've been talking about peace, but I never defined it. At first I spoke of fear and trouble and doubt, then of injustices and oppressions by governments, and then of sin. And I've been hinting all along that peace, true peace, is the absence of these things. And yes, I think that's at least a start on an acceptable definition of peace. The absence of conflict, the absence of conflict with others, conflict within, and conflict with God. The absence of injustice and oppression would be peace between men or among men. The absence of fear and trouble and doubt would be peace within. And the absence of sin, or the purifying and removal of sin, would be the highest peace of all. That would be peace with God. The peace of God is all of these things and more. It's a state of reconciliation where every relationship is healthy and harmonious. It's a state of delight wherein one's heart is content and joyful and there are no sorrows or tears. It's a state of rest wherein one is confident that all is well in one's soul and in the world and there is no fear or trouble or doubt. It's a state of completeness and wholeness wherein one is fully satisfied. Every need is met and there's no lack or want. It is in one word what Jesus said to His disciples, Shalom. And the story of Christmas reminds us that shalom is made possible by God's gift of His Son. And so Christians can say, along with the Apostle Paul, that Jesus is our peace. As I've said already, He Himself is our peace. But wait a minute, you say. That all sounds great. In fact, it sounds like heaven. But right now, I live on a little place we like to call planet Earth. And I don't see so much of that shalom stuff down here. As a matter of fact, in the last few years, it seems like I've been seeing less and less of it. Well, if you think shalom sounds like heaven, you're right, more or less. What it really is, is what Jesus called eternal life. And no, there isn't much of it around here these days, but it is here, and we can have it. But first, we need to acknowledge that we can't make it ourselves. We can't make shalom like Israel, like Rome, we can't make true peace ourselves. And that's because we are sinful. And here's where the rubber starts to meet the road. We need to admit that we are the problem. It's not my circumstances, though they may be miserable. It's not my colleagues or my neighbors. It's certainly not God. No, I am the problem. In fact, without God's gift of peace, the Bible says that we are at war with God. 
We are enemies of God, Romans 5.10. He loves us. He values us. But we, apart from Him, are hostile in mind, Colossians 1.21. And we are hard of heart, Ephesians 4.18. But having admitted that we are the problem, having humbled ourselves, the next thing we need to do is recognize that God is the only source of true peace. And we've basically have gone through that now, saying that sin is the problem, that God is the source of true peace. But how do we recognize this? How do, how do we advance? How do we attain peace? Here's where I want to look at the third player in the story, Mary. Mary's reaction to the events on the first Christmas day remind us that the gift of God's peace is received by faith. Mary reminds us that the gift of God's peace is received by faith. So back to Luke 2, this time verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's a short sentence. If you think about it, it's like an island of tranquility in a sea of turmoil and excitement. There's the Roman tyranny and taxation that we talked about, the long haul to Bethlehem from Nazareth, no proper place to stay, the breathless shepherds, the news about the angels, and did I mention she just gave birth? All this swirling around, and in the center, there is Mary. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's a sense of peace, of acceptance, of rest in that sentence. That leads me to say Mary is an illustration that the gift of God's peace is received by faith. When I say faith, I mean both an intellectual reception and a heartfelt acceptance of what God has done and a resting in that acceptance. Intellectually receiving, heartfelt accepting, and resting in that accepting. A resting in what God has done. That's true faith, or what I would call saving faith. And that is what I see in Mary's response. Do you see it too? Do you see how Mary receives and accepts what God has done? But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The Greek word for treasured, suntereo, suntereo, I wanted to say that right, suntereo. It comes from two words, sun, which means closely together with, and tereo, which means I guard or I keep safe. So suntereo literally means to keep safe together. In other words, to keep within oneself, to keep in mind, to keep close, to keep safe. And we read translation to treasure in your, in, her, in your heart. The Greek word for pondering is sumbalo. It also comes from two words, sun, which means closely together with, and, and, and then it's connected to balo, which means, sounds like ball, means to throw or to cast. So sumbalo means literally to throw together. In other words, to discuss, to consider, to bring together in one's mind, or confer with oneself. In Luke 2.19 it says, Mary pondered, sumbalo, these things in her heart. The idea is she threw them together in her mind. She turned them over and over in her head. She considered, she pondered. You can imagine that this was all a lot for her to take in. And Luke says it's all these things. What was Mary taking in? What were all these things? Well, the name of few, angels had announced her son's birth. Doesn't happen every day. Angels had appeared to shepherds. These shepherds, total strangers, had just burst in on them. Beyond that, as we noted, she just had a child. But she had a child without ever having known a man. Yeah, she'd carried him for nine months, so I suppose she had some time to get used to the idea. But now here he was, a miracle of God. 
But beyond that, it was like the pieces of a puzzle were coming together. It was all happening as the angel Gabriel had predicted when he visited her before Jesus was conceived. The, angel, the angels called this child Savior. And Gabriel had said to name him Jesus, which means Yahweh, God, is salvation. The angels that night called this child Christ, the Anointed One, the King. Gabriel had said that he would sit on David's throne and that his kingdom would have no end. But beyond even all that, the most astounding fact had to be all this. The angel had, had, sorry, the most astounding fact had to be this. The angel had called her son God. They didn't just say he was a savior. They didn't just say he was Christ. They said that he was a savior who is Christ the Lord. This tiny baby, this newborn human being, is the Lord. He is God. All these things, Luke says, all these amazing things were the work of God and Mary had had a front row seat. And what was her response? She received all these things, accepted them, she tied them together in her mind and she rolled them over in her heart. I doubt she fully understood them. I don't think she could have. Um, For example, given a theological dissertation on the doctrine of the Incarnation or doctrine of the Trinity, not at least at this point, But she saw the miracles of God and she received them. And in the midst of the turmoil, she's an image of rest, resting in the acceptance of what God has done. And this is an image for us all of peace, the peace of God that comes through faith. Mary's faith in response to the miracles of God reminds me of a psalm that we studied a few months ago, Psalm 95. There the author reminds us that this was long before Mary. There were people who also saw miraculous works of God. But their reaction was quite different from Mary's. These people saw God bring down plagues on their enemies, Pharaoh and Egypt. They saw God liberate them from their oppression. They saw the sea open. They walked through it on dry land. They saw God descend in fire and smoke on the mountain. They heard His voice. They saw His word, His Ten Commandments written by His very finger. And they ate bread from heaven. And what was their reaction? Psalm 95 tells us that they hardened their hearts. They tested God. They provoked God. They grumbled. They complained. They refused to trust Him. They refused to have faith. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 3 and 4. And he he quotes from Psalm 95. And he recounts this history. And then in Hebrews 3.15, he writes, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried Me by testing Me, and saw my works. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And skipping down a few verses, the writer continues, for who provoked God when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were not able to enter. They were not able to enter his rest because of unbelief. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. That means they weren't able to enter the promised land, but it also means they were not able to enter God's rest. They would not receive the peace of God. 
And the reason they would not is that they did not believe. They did not have faith. Or to connect back with Luke 2, we can say they didn't respond the way Mary did. They did not receive God's peace because they did not treasure up all these things and ponder them in their heart. Having seen all that God had done, they did not have faith in what God would do. Back to Hebrews in chapter 4, the writer goes on to admonish his readers and us today. He says, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And then he gives us this wonderful promise, for we who have believed enter that rest. And then in verse 10, for the one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. This is how the peace of God is received. Having admitted our inability to make peace ourselves and having recognized God's, having provided that peace as a gift and having recognized that the gift of peace is his son and the works that his son has done for us, we receive that gift by faith. We receive that gift by resting in his son and in his works. And Mary, treasuring and pondering, shows us what it looks like to receive and to rest in the work that God has done. She reminds us that the peace of God is received by faith. Even still, having received the peace of God, having entered into God's rest, that doesn't mean our struggles are over. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. The chaos of this world will continue to swirl around us. Interpersonal conflict, financial struggles, fear, doubt, disappointment, sickness, death, wars. We went through that at the beginning. We still face them all. To finally do away with all these things, the Bible says that heaven and earth need to be completely made new. And that won't happen until Jesus returns. The good news is that it will happen when Jesus returns. And because that is true, and because we know that is true, because we have peace with God now as a result of what Jesus has done for us, because we have eternal life now as a result of Jesus living in us and his Holy Spirit working in us, because these things are true, our whole perspective has changed. We read the passage this morning from Romans 5 where Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have peace with God, Paul says. Peace that was a gift of God's grace received by faith and accompanied by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, pouring out, and the pouring out of God's love upon us. And because these things are true, because we have peace with God, we exult in hope. We exult in our tribulations. What does that look like? This is where the shepherds come in. The shepherds show us that God's gift of peace changes our world. You know the story. We read it now. The shepherds heard and saw the angels. They saw Joseph and Mary and Jesus. What must that have been like? 
I don't think I can say it any better than a song I'm going to read you, which tells of the shepherd's visit from the perspective of one of the shepherds. It goes like this. I'm here with the others who saw the heavens testify. Now I hang back in the shadows. I want to come close. I want to know. She, that would be Mary, sees me shivering here. She smiles and with a nod, I walk through the mud and straw to the newborn Son of God. He raises a wrinkled hand through the dust and the flies, wrapped in rags like we are, and with barely open eyes, he takes my finger, and he won't let go, and he won't let go. It's nothing like I knew before, and it's all I need to know. Come, let us adore him. He has come down to this barren land where we live, and all I have to give him is adoration. Come, let us adore him. He has come down to the world that we live in, and all I have to give him is adoration. God is with us here, our Emmanuel. God is with us here, our Emmanuel. I just love this song because it makes you feel what the shepherds must have felt and understand what they must have understood. Somehow they knew they had visited God, or more correctly, that God had visited them. He'd come down to meet them, despite the lowliness of their occupation and Station as semi-outcasts in that culture, God had visited them. And their response, consider their response. They worshipped God. Luke 2.20 tells us the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as the angels, just as had been told them. Again, like Mary, did they understand the full implications of all they had heard and seen? Probably not but they knew enough to glorify and praise God. And today, we know so much more. We know that Jesus, being in nature God, humbled himself to take on flesh. We know that he entered into this world to suffer and die for us and save us. And we know that because he did that, we have peace with God. And we know that God is here, now, with us. Because we know that, because we have peace with God, our hearts should be overflowing with praise And I do mean overflowing. And I understand it can be a challenge for us in a culture we find ourselves in. But having peace with God means that we are called and equipped to spread that peace into all the world, to be emissaries, ambassadors of His peace to all the world. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we, having received peace with God, having been reconciled to Him, Paul says, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We have the word of reconciliation, the word of peace and we are to share it with those around us. Romans 10, Paul says, how can people call upon the Lord if they have not believed in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they have not heard of Him? And how will they hear of Him if no one tells them? How will they find peace if no one tells them? Again, we see the shepherds modeling for us what Paul is exhorting us to, going and telling the good news. In verse 15, chapter 2 of Luke, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened that the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. They made known the statement which had been told them about this child. So having seen and heard the angels, they went straight away to see more and having seen that it was true 
What did they do? They preached the good news. If you can imagine that, the, the, the shepherds preached the word about Christ to Mary and to Joseph. And we are called to do the same, to bring the good news of Jesus and the peace of God into a, to a world that's in desperate need. So I want you to know this was uh, quite a difficult sermon for me to prepare because I, <clears throat> I stand before you a broken man. Sorry, I am well aware. I stand before you a broken man. <laughs> and my microphone's not cooperating. I'm well aware that I am living in a broken world. There's strife and conflict in my life. Things that threaten to tear me apart. And things I wish would just go away. I sin, I struggle, I fear, I doubt, I'm anxious. But I know the wonderful story. I know the good news. I know that as Jesus told his disciples on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, all things that were written about Jesus in the scriptures have been fulfilled. I know that he lived. I know that he died. I know that he lives forevermore and I know he's coming back again. And because I know that and I am trusting in that, I know I have peace with God. And because I have peace with God, I know that I can have peace with others and that I can be an agent of peace in the world. And I know that one day, Jesus will bring peace. He will bring shalom. And I know that one day, Jesus will bring reconciliation wherein every relationship is healthy and harmonious. He'll bring delight wherein our hearts are content and joyful and there are no sorrows or tears. He'll bring rest wherein we are confident that all is well in our souls and in the world. And there is no fear. He'll bring completeness and wholeness wherein there is full satisfaction and every need is met and there's no lack or want. So this morning as I close, I say to myself and I say to you what Jesus said to his disciples at the end of the story. Back to Luke 24. Why are you troubled? and Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, he said. See my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Peace be to you. He's risen. This is Christmas. May Jesus be your peace. May Jesus be your shalom. Shalom. Amen.